These are the extraordinary tales of those who put everything on the line to succeed. This is The Adventurers with me, Sam Cowan. Now, by that stage, I had attempted suicide five times. And I was sitting with a blade in my hand for the sixth time. And something inside of me, all of a sudden, like something inside of me said, you know what, Joe, if you want this to change, there's only one person that can change it. You know, if, if you're not happy and you want things to change, no one can do it for you. You have to do it. And you know, I say to myself in that moment, okay, I'm really tired of being scared of everything. I'm, I'm tired of living with all this fear. So what is the biggest, scariest thing I can think of doing? And up came, then the idea came to mind, I want to be the first woman to cycle around Africa. Jo Rust was raped on her 18th birthday. She was raped in the commune when she'd gone to stay after she ran away from a difficult and unhappy home the year before. She had suffered and struggled with anxiety and fear her whole life, and this almost broke her. She said afterwards she got so sick that someone had to call her grandmother to come and get her, and she spent a year at home trying to work out what was wrong with her. We were sitting in Picabello, a restaurant in Melville, when she told me her story, and she said back then she'd never have been able to sit and have that conversation. She'd have been too scared. She was even scared back then to go into a supermarket. We met at Picabello because it's where she used to work, that's where she was happy, because she was saving up her wages to go cycling through Africa. Yeah, so I announced this and um, got all this negative feedback, but, you know, pushed through with it. And so I decided, okay, obviously no one's really uh, wanting to throw money at me. Because and these are expensive think, things to do. Yeah, and they think, because people think I'm nuts. So I said to myself, okay, I have to prove myself. If I do something, at least, then people will see that I'm capable. So first off, I decided I would cycle from Joburg to Cape Town. I had no money. I really had no money. So I had this cheap bicycle and put, a, a, you know, like a rucksack at the back and off I go to Cape Town. And I did it in two weeks' time. Joburg to Cape Town in two weeks. There All I go. by yourself, no support. All by myself. And now I'm thinking, okay, now, they, now they're going to support me. Still nothing. Come back, you know, big disappointment. Everyone's still like, no, you're nuts. It's not going to happen. So I'm like, okay, I have to do something bigger. What, what's the next step? Okay, I'm going to go around South Africa. So start from Joburg, I went down to Richards Bay, down the coast, up the west coast to Springbok, all the way across, and then back to Joburg. It's about 6,000 Ks. <laughs> Tell me someone was impressed there. <laughs> so I did, <laughs> again, all on my own. Come back, so 6,000 Ks in exactly 100 days. Come back, I'm like, okay, now, now they have to, they have to. And it's like, no, you're still nuts. We still think you're, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Maybe I should just, I should just try and raise the money myself so I come and work here. <laughs> Pick a bellow. Yes. We worked out she'd have had to work for a decade or more to raise the money. But it didn't stop her. She was so determined. She told anyone who'd listen about her trip. A stranger sent her a thousand US dollars and her best friend bought her a tent. So now I realize that if I wait until I have everything I need for this trip, I'm going to be waiting for the rest of my life. So I decide I don't have anything, but it doesn't matter. I have a bicycle, I have my kit, and I had literally less than 2,000 rand to my name. And I said, well, I'm just going to start. 
I'm just going to start because somehow I know this is going to work. I just know with every molecule of my body this is going to work. On the 27th of April, Freedom Day in 2011, Jo set off from Cape Town on her bike to ride her way all around Africa. She got through Namibia, then into Angola, and everything was going really well until it wasn't. This one fateful morning, I had just gotten on the road and I was feeling horrible because I was so sick. And I actually thought I had malaria. So I tested myself that morning and it showed negative. So I was like, I guess probably just a flu. So I slowly got on the road and um, this black Ford pickup stopped next to me. Four guys got out of it. And it was when they pulled out uh, pungas and knives that I realized they don't want to chit-chat. Give you coffee. Yeah. yeah, they don't want to give me coffee. And um, the only thing I could think of in that split second was I grabbed one of the front panniers of my bicycle, hoping that it was the pannier with my journals and paperwork in it, and just ran into the bushes. Knowing they wouldn't, I knew they wouldn't follow me for some reason. I just knew this. So I ran as fast as my legs would carry me. I was still fit then. <laughs> After a while, I stopped turning around, just in time to see them disappearing, you know, around the bend over, over the horizon with my stuff. And I was like... Right, I now have two choices. I can now become the first woman to walk around Africa <laughs> or go home and regroup and start over. The Angolans were mortified. She'd been robbed on their soil by their people. Jo had quite a following by then. News of her ride had spread, and so when she called a friend in Luanda to ask for help, it was the governor of the region himself she ended up having lunch with. According to Jo, the meeting was utterly surreal. And to hear more about it, click on the link in the text associated with this episode. He was the one who compensated her for her loss and put her on a plane back to South Africa. That dream was over, but she had a new one. She was going to go back and do it all, but this time on a motorbike. But she'd never ridden one before. I started scouring forums. So I went online and started reading up on adventure motorcycles, overlanding motorcycles. And it basically came down to three motorcycles. The BMW, it was a Kawasaki and a Honda. What do you need in an overland motorbike? For me, I had some specific criteria for myself. Number one, I needed to be able to pick up the bike by myself. Number two, it had to be a simple enough bike so I could work on it myself mechanically. And number three, it needed to be a pretty cheap bike. <laughs> Maybe number three first. Yeah. <laughs> she needed money and she found it in the most unexpected place. She got a Facebook message from the Minister of Local Government in Angola. And he writes, I'm really sorry about what happened and if there's anything we can do to help you, please say so. So I take a fat chance and I'm like, well, you know what? I actually want to start over on a motorcycle. Is there any chance that Angola might consider getting involved or support in any way or form? And um, he says to me, okay, send me a budget and a proposal. So that's when I started doing all this research, crunching numbers. What do I need for the entire trip? So this is everything, all included. So this is all your food, all your equipment, the all bike. my equipment, the bike, the visas. I mean, the visas are insane, insane. Each visa amounts to, let's say, about a thousand rand per visa. But how many countries? Yeah, so I ended up going through 28 countries. Did and you then need visas for every single one? Almost. <laughs> so visas alone would have nearly 30 sticks. Okay. And how so, much was the bike? Um, the That's first one was, the Kawasaki was 60,000 rand. Second one? 50,000 rand. So essentially your visas cost over half your actual bike. Yeah. So I crunched some numbers, um, put together this 
budget for them, send it to the minister, and now I'm waiting. The amount came to $60,000. And I'm like, this is this insane. Is yeah. Two weeks later, an email comes back, and this email pops up in my Gmail account, and I'm too afraid to open it. So I see it, and I'm like, click, eyes closed, open it, read it, and, it's, and it says, Angola will sponsor the entire trip. I was like, should I give you a monthly report back? They couldn't care less. They didn't want anything. They just felt so bad about what happened to me. And I'm like... Those four guys actually did you a favor. <laughs> Literally, the best thing that's ever happened to my life is four guys attacked me on the side of the road in northern Angola. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> now she was good to go. Her brother taught her to ride the bike. She packed it herself. She says she took way too much stuff and took all the wrong clothes. But you live and learn. She decided this time to leave from Cape Agulhas, the southernmost point of South Africa. And she retraced her tracks through Namibia, through Angola again, where she had an armed escort through the country, courtesy of the Angolan government. Well, she was supposed to. But for more on how that went down, click on the link in the text associated with this episode for more. She crossed the border into Congo, made it to the equator, wended her way through Cameroon, and then she hit Nigeria. So when I entered the country, I get to the border. My first experience is the customs official looks at me, it's a woman, and she says to me, so my visa is valid for two weeks. She says to me, I'll give you 48 hours. So I'm like, why? Well, they have the right to change if they want to. And I'm like, so I, I point to my bike and I say to her, do you see that motorcycle? Yes. Could you ride that motorcycle across Nigeria in two days? Because if so, I'll take the two days. Exactly. So she's like, okay, I'll give you three days. I'm like, oh, come on. So I figure, oh, well. So I'm not too worried about it because this is Nigeria. You know, you sort things out. So by this stage, I have figured out that the motorcycling community is the biggest family on earth. So I start befriending motorcycle clubs along the way in these different countries and these guys receive me like one of their own it's the most amazing thing same thing in nigeria so when i get to the first town calabar which is right in the south this motorcycling club meets up with me they put me up in a lodge they feed me make sure that i have everything i need they wash my bike they take me around they treat me like a piece of gold you know. It must be nice to have a hot shower as well and a meal that someone else has prepared. Yes, yeah. it is. So I'm just blown away by their hospitality. At this point, a Joburg thunderstorm drove us both inside the restaurant. And the irony wasn't lost on either of us that it happened just as Joe was describing her first real snag in Morocco. Because she had to go through Europe to get to Tunisia, she needed a Schengen visa. And she had to be in her country of origin to apply. So she had to go home. Because now I have to leave my bike there. So it has to go under custom seal. They literally take like 10 sets of fingerprints, photos and paperwork and, okay, left my bike there, came back and decided, okay, whilst I'm here, I might as well get the rest of the visas mm. that I need. Apply for the visas, get my visas up until Ethiopia, mm. and then I go ride for the first time ever on the back of a bike with a friend up near Mozambique and he accidentally picks the bike down with me on the back and my ankle gets trapped under the bike and is shirt. I knew instantly. I heard it and I felt it. I knew it was gone. So that's why I broke my ankle. So you weren't even riding the bike at the time? Next irony. Yeah, I wasn't riding the bike. Irony. Next irony. So my travel insurance that I bought for this trip covers me for everywhere in the world except South Africa. A few days turned into six months. 
all her visas expired and she had to apply for new ones. And by the time she got back to Morocco, she found she had to pay a fine on her bike for leaving it in customs too long. I had to know, what stopped her giving up? That promise I made myself all those years back that I would never give up until I got to the finish line. So it, was, it wasn't even a promise I made to someone else. It was a promise I made to myself and I couldn't break that promise. So no matter what, I just had to, I had to carry on. So that's what drove me. And also it was a bit of, um, I wanted to show people that, especially the naysayers, that we're all capable of amazing things. You don't have to live in this little box. There's, the possibilities we have are endless. It, it just depends on what you allow yourself to achieve. Was it a journey or was it a pilgrimage? Either way, it continued from Morocco to Spain to France to Italy and finally back to Africa. To Tunisia. So where we have the most southern point, Tunisia is the most northern point in Africa, Cap Blanc, which is northwest from Tunis. So I went there and um, so it was that moment where I'd now reached the halfway point. So it was a big day and a few friends rode with me to the top and it was like, okay, now I'm halfway. Tunisia was awesome because um, a group of guys rode with me, showed me around. I did a whole uh, trip for a week through the country. I'm a total geek, so I went to all the Star Wars sets, which was a big dream of mine to visit the Star Wars sets. I didn't know all filmed up there. Yeah. Oh, wow. And the sets are all still there. And, you know, they have these big Darth Vader posters up. It is amazing. It is so cool. So, yeah. And obviously you're obliged to walk around making lightsaber sounds, you know. And they've, they've actually turned these sets into guest houses. So there's like a bar that you can go to and you can rent a room and these rooms are built into the walls. You know, it's like it's like a mountain face and the rooms are built into the mountain. It's amazing because it's so hot there. And it was the hottest temperature I had on my trip. It was 47 degrees. No, 50-something in Tunisia. The next stop was Libya. Her initial visa request was denied. But the Libyan Motorcycling Federation put in a call to the Ministry of Tourism to get Joe across the border. And she got an official invitation. Oh, so two of my two friends from Tunisia ride all the way to the border with me to make sure that I'm safe. And then, you know, hands me over. <laughs> I go through customs and everything um, and get to the other side. And there's this group of guys, a local motorcycling club from Tripoli, who'd come to welcome me into the country. And I didn't know that they were going to be there. So it's amazing. And... Um, we get uh, as we as we leave, the border behind us closes because a fight breaks out between Tunisian Libyan customs officials or whatever. So the border closes behind us. The border with Egypt is closed. So now I'm landlocked in Libya. So I'm like, well, I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna have to hang around in Libya for a while. Make it to Tripoli, and they put me up in the most ridiculously luxurious hotel. Like, Libya has the most amazing hotels, and I don't know who they're built for because there's no... Well, I think there used to be um, tourism, but now it's a war, so there's no one. I'm literally the only person in this huge, grand hotel. It's like a Stephen King novel. (laughs) It is insane, and all the while there's, like, bombs and, you know, gunfire going off around me. I'm like, this is just insane. And then the most ironic moment of the whole trip happens when I'm riding through the streets of Tripoli in this green jeep with one of the guys from the motorcycle club. And it's an open jeep. And 
the console between the driver and the passenger seat is modified and when he opens it there's a whole bunch of guns in there and every time we stop I have to hand out a gun to one of his friends and we're riding through the streets of Tripoli with on a cassette player on the radio from a cassette is playing um, Tracy Chapman's talking about a revolution <laughs> I'm just I'm just sitting with this biggest biggest smile on my face because I'm like you really are living a movie I it is I can, I can see Kate Winslet going I'm in, going I'm in this is my Oscar movie this is this is my movie <laughs> you know and I'm like this is just insane it was insane and so was her trip to the Egyptian border. A bunch of guys saddled up and said they would ride with me to the border, which was about a thousand pays from Tripoli. <laughs> we got to the next town, Homs, and there was a wedding, so we had to go to the wedding. <laughs> and it was the weirdest experience because, again, I mean, it's you know, this it was awesome. It was awesome to experience it, and you know, I was like the guest of honor at this wedding, and. Even in non-liberal Libya, uh, the guys allowed me to sit with the men, you know, when they had, when they were eating, which is unheard of. They sent me around to the women to go and see what happens on that side, because no one's allowed there. And I just, I took one peek <laughs> and decided, I want to be with the guys. Because <laughs> the girls, I mean, I think when they're let loose, they go nuts. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I'm going to go back to the guys because they we're just riding bikes and shooting guns and normal stuff. Normal stuff, you know, sitting around eating, you know, firing AKs and, you know, as one does at a wedding. <laughs> she had one place she really wanted to visit, a town called Sirt, which had seen the worst of the fighting during the war. She says she felt compelled to visit. She says she needed to see it for herself. To hear more about the tragedy of that small town, click on the link in the text. For that episode. And Egypt was not what she'd expected either. There she arrived to find herself a celebrity. I mean, everywhere I go in Cairo, again, the Ministry of Tourism knows about me. They know that I'm in the country. They give me a personal guard whilst in Cairo, and the local biking community organize rides and uh, like this whole get together because now nobody has anything to do because it's war. And I'm watching the TV, and I'm watching a scene that's happening right next to me, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, it's, it's bizarre. You know, then you know what it's like to be a journo in those war zones. So the Ministry of Tourism then decides to use me as a way of showing the people outside that it's actually okay. Because the whole world is trying to get out of Egypt, and I'm like the only person who wants to get in. So they launched this campaign and used me to... Like, they did all kinds... There were all kinds of pictures going around. People in the Red Sea with banners saying, we're all right, Egypt is okay. And they did the same with me. And in each town that I got, they put me up again in these five-star lodges, which to me was just crazy. I mean, I wasn't expecting it. and It's not that I actually wanted it. It was just, it's just how it worked out. But I was eternally grateful for their hospitality. And in each town, I got to meet the governor of the town and they gave, started giving me medals everywhere I went. And it was just national news. The road home wound down through the Sudan and Ethiopia. And then from there, um, I decided not to go through Somalia because I just figured, you know what, I've pushed my luck enough and I knew that it would be a suicide mission going into Somalia. So I decided not to go through Somalia, 
rather come down through Ethiopia and then into Kenya. And um, Kenya was also plain sailing, except this was the first mechanical issues I had on my bike. The rear suspension went. It was a See, little... I know that's bad. <laughs> exactly. So it's, if I had to explain what it's like, it's like riding a pogo stick. And it was on the last stretch of off-road, 300 kilometers of corrugated road. And it was, yeah, not Could you fun. fix it yourself? So no. it took me two days to do that 300Ks. And then I got to Nairobi. And then friends back in South Africa offered, they had a, a spare shock. And they said, you can have it. And then TNT sponsored the shipping <laughs> to Kenya. And by this point, I could fit my own suspension. So I fixed my bike. I spent quite a bit of time in Kenya, which I loved. When I left Kenya, I said I want to be home within the next 10 days. So I rode through Tanzania. And then initially the idea was to go from Tanzania to Mozambique, all along the coast, into South Africa. And that's what she did. And when I enter Swaziland and I get to the border, SA border, um, I, when I hand in my passport for the very last time to get the very last stamp, the customs officer looks up at me and he says, Welcome home, Joe." And then I, then I see the group of people and friends that have come to surprise me at the border. And they obviously told them. So I burst out in tears and I'm like, oh my soul. And now reality starts to sink in. And then I cross the border back onto South African soil. And from there, all the way down the coast, past Durban, you know, down the Transkei, people start riding with me so I have a group that will ride halfway with me and the next group will come up halfway you know fetch me ride with me stay over every night it's like 50 plus people it's a huge party it's um, people welcoming me back all the way down to Agulhas and then the very last day um, I have this huge convoy behind me of bikes and as I come into Agulhas, just before you know you, you get to the most southern point, all the restaurants on the side of the road have signs outside saying, "Welcome back, Joe. Welcome home, Joe." And I mean, I'm. It's it's just one of those moments where it's so unreal. And I'm the last hundred meters before I actually get to the point where I started from. This whole group pulls back. And I look in my rear mirrors and I realize, you know, they're pulling back to allow me to have this moment. And I am crying so hard in my helmet. But the most amazing thing is when I get back to that point, I realize I'm not afraid anymore of anything. So it was all, that was what it was all about. She'd done it. She was the first woman ever to motorbike around the African continent solo. It took Joe 45,000 kilometers and 18 months to conquer her fears. Two years later, as I sat drinking coffee with this conqueror of a continent, I asked her what had stayed with her, besides medals and photos and Tracy Chapman tapes. What had she taken away? Going from having so many fears and being in a place where I, I would not have been able to like just have this conversation... Mm. I couldn't talk to strangers without getting a full-on anxiety attack. And now it's like, I, I understand. You know, nothing is as hectic as we make it out to be, you know. We tell ourselves in our minds that this is so bad. When you take a leap and you look back, then you realize it's not that bad. 
nothing is that bad. Even everything I went through, you know, even the worst stuff that I went through, it's not that bad. It is active, but it's there to teach you something. And you learn from it and you grow from it. So it's all worth it. You know, looking back, I would not want to change anything. If I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Even the broken ankle? Even the broken ankle. <laughs> I'm Sam Cowan, and I hope you've enjoyed this incredible story. Jo hasn't picked a new adventure yet. She thinks one will find her. In the meantime, she trains other people in off-road biking to help them fight their fears the way her own experience helped her. To catch up with Jo, you can visit her website, joruss.com. And for more photos, visit The Adventurers on the 702 or Cape Talk websites. You can also subscribe to the series to have the podcast automatically download to your listening device.